So there are many contests in life where the outcome is what you might call a toss-up, right? Too close to call. So my wife and I lived in Washington, D.C. during the infamous 2000 presidential election, right? Bush versus Gore. And we were glued to our TVs that evening, Aaron and I watching from our apartment couch as the polls closed and the results of that election started to slowly trickle in. And it was clearly going to be a close race, but no one knew at the start of that evening how close it really would become. And one by one, the states started to fall for each candidate, running neck and neck. What became pretty apparent by the early evening was that Florida was going to play a significant role. Gore was ahead in the exit polls in Florida by a decent amount. And so around 7 p.m., the Associated Press called Florida for Gore, thus pushing Gore basically over the electoral line, tipping the election in his favor. And the headquarters there for Gore in Nashville broke out in applause, right? Champagne corks erupted into the air. And about a thousand miles away or so in Texas, George's brother Jeb Bush. Right then, Jeb was the governor of Florida. He hugged his brother, rather misty-eyed, so dejected that the brother couldn't deliver his own state for the brother running for the presidency. And yet, if you know what happened, it only was about two hours later where all of a sudden Florida was now undecided again. And hopes in the Bush camp, right, they leapt. Every network now zeroed in on that state. And it was just after midnight that all of a sudden Bush leapt ahead. And the, now the networks are calling the election for Bush. So now there's jubilation in Texas. There's dejection in Nashville. And given the size of the lead, Gore would call Bush that evening. And after rehearsing his acceptance speech, now had to turn and give his personal concession of the election to Bush. But if you know the story... Just a few hours later, 2.30 a.m., Bush's sudden lean was all of a sudden shrinking, his lead was. Gore then called him back, and there was a frosty exchange because Gore withdrew his concession, right? Wasn't willing to concede. And then by 3.30 a.m., the networks are like, we don't know what's going on. The race is too close to call. And so my wife and I, exhausted, somewhat mesmerized, also a little frustrated by the, all the back and forth and the uncertainty, right? We had friends in D.C. whose own careers and jobs are sort of on the line, depending on who won, right? That was going on. At this point, papers had erroneously just gone to print, declaring Bush as the winner. And it was about 4 a.m. that, at that time, Tom Brokaw, who was the NBC anchor, goes on the news and says famously, we don't have egg on our faces we have omelet all over our suits. They had totally botched it. Now, of course, you know the rest of the story. There were recounts. There were hanging chads, right? Bush would end up winning Florida, I think, by 0.009% of the vote. Of course, that wouldn't finally decide it until it went to the Supreme Court, and that only in a 5-4 decision they handed the election to Bush. We were there when that court case was being heard outside listening fascinating times and friends I didn't even care that much for politics point being right there some contests seem too close to call right it's a toss-up be it in politics friends it's the same in sports like the first game of the world series the other night I do watch some baseball right when there's nothing else on, you know, if it's infomercials or baseball, I'll put on some baseball. Just kidding. Point being, many things are toss-ups, right? Nobody's able to reliably predict the outcome. But friends, what about matters as it relates to God? What about matters as it relates to God? Friends, does God get his way? Can God reliably predict the outcomes of life? Can God even work to ensure those outcomes? All of them, whether big or small, can he ensure that they tilt in his favor? And friends, if so, does that truth that God can work to ensure his own outcomes in his favor, friends, does that encourage you? Or does the prospect of that terrify you? 
Well, friends, it's questions like this that bring us this morning back, big questions, no doubt, right, to the Old Testament book of Numbers. Numbers, we're going to be in chapters 22 to 24 this morning. I'd invite you to turn there now. If you don't have a Bible, you can find them, uh, those red pew Bibles, uh, seatback Bibles. You can find our text beginning where I for 130, page 130. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible, just a quick orientation where I for a chapter number, that's the big bold number. Uh, like number 22, for example, when I refer to verse number, those are the small superscript numbers. And if you've not been with us, numbers is really the story of why it took Israel 40 long years to travel what should have been but four simple weeks. And we had seen that despite all God has done, right, to redeem his people and to care for them, they rejected him along the way. And so that first generation is left to die off in the wilderness, one by one, dropping to the dust and prohibited entering the promised land. But last week we saw that a new generation arose. And unlike their unbelieving parents, this new generation was marked more by belief. Right? They trusted God, whereas their parents had often turned away from him. And we left off last week with Israel finally roaring toward the promised land like a freight train, right? First military victories, big victories over the Canaanites, over the Amorites, for example. And we concluded with them in chapter 22, verse 1. And where are they? They're camping just opposite Jericho along the Jordan River, right at the edge of the promised land. They are there. And now, though, in chapters 22 to 24, the camera is going to shift. And for the first time, we're really moved out of the camp of the Israelites. And we're brought more into mission control over in Moab, into an adjacent uh, people, a neighboring nation. And here we're going to be introduced to this dreaded, desperate king and a conniving prophet. And both of them are going to conspire to bring destruction upon Israel. And so the question is, will they succeed? Can they outwit and outmaneuver God and bring a swift end to God's people? Now last week I held off on the main idea of the sermon until the very end, and that confused some of you, so here you go, right? Right at the get-go. I think Numbers 22 to 24 powerfully teach, and often poetically as we'll see, a very simple truth. God's promises always prevail. That simple truth. God's promises always prevail. And we're going to see first that they prevail despite spiritual opposition. That's going to be chapter 22. And second, they prevail despite secular aggression. And that'll be in chapters 23 to 24. So God's purposes always prevail, and they prevail despite spiritual opposition, and secondly, despite secular aggression. So first, God's promises always prevail, again, despite spiritual opposition, despite spiritual opposition. We see this in in chapter 2, rather 22, and why don't you follow along as I read chapter 22, picking up in verse 2. And Balak, son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was in great dread of the people because they were many. Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, This horde will now lick up all that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. And so Balak, the son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at that time, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the people of Ammah. To call him, saying, Behold, the people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth, and they are dwelling opposite me. Come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed." So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with fees of divination in their hand, and they came to Balaam and gave him Balak's message. And he said to them, Lodge here tonight, and I will bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam, and God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? And Balaam said to God, 
Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent to me, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt, and it covers the face of the earth. Now come, curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to fight against them and drive them out. And God said to Balaam, You shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, Go to your own land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. So the princes of Moab rose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. Once again, Balak sent princes, more in number and more honorable than these. And they came to Balaam and said to him, Thus says Balak the son of Zippor, Let nothing hinder you from coming to me, for I will surely do you great honor. And whatever you say to me, I will do. Come, Curse this people for me. But Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the command of the Lord my God to do less or more. So you too, please stay here tonight that I may know what more the Lord will say to me. And God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men have come to call you, rise, go with them, but only do what I tell you. And so Balaam rose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the princes of Moab. But God's anger was kindled as he went. And the angel of the Lord took his hand in the way as his adversary, or rather took his stand in the way as his adversary. Now he was riding on the donkey and his two servants were with him. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field. And Balaam struck the donkey to turn, into the, turn her into the road. And then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on either side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. And then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right or to the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. And Balaam's anger was kindled. And he struck the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. And she said to him, Balaam, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, because you have made a fool of me. I wish I had a sword in my hand for I would kill you. And the donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, No. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed down and fell on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside before me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely just now I would have killed you and let her live. And then Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Now therefore it is evil. If it is evil in your sight, I will turn back. And the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men, but speak only the word that I tell you. And so Balaam went on with the princes of Balak. And when Balak heard that Balaam had come, he went out to meet him at the city of Moab on the border formed by the Arnon at the extremity of the border. And Balak said to Balaam, did I not send to you to call you? Why did you not come to me? Am I not able to honor you? And Balaam said to Balak, behold, I have come to you. Have I now any power of my own to speak anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that must I speak. And then Balaam went with Balak, and they came to Kiriath-Huzoth. And Balak sacrificed oxen and sheep and sent for Balaam and for the princes who were with him. And in the morning, Balak took Balaam and brought him up to Bamath Baal. And from there, he saw a fraction of the people. All right, so let's go ahead and stop there, because we have just come to one of the most memorable and really one of the most humorous stories in all of scripture. Many people who don't even know that much about the Bible know something about Balaam and his donkey. 
But friends, it is also a bit of a puzzling and peculiar passage, a passage that sometimes raises more questions than it in fact answers. And because it's easy to get the characters confused, right? Balak ends with a K, think king. He's the king of Moab. Balaam ends with an M, right? Think medium, think seer. Think one who consults with the spiritual world, right? Even seeks to bend that spiritual world to do his bidding, right? That's who Balaam was. And notice Moab, after witnessing all that Israel has just done to the Amorites, right, to Og and to his people, Moab, all those folks, they're shaking in their boots, right? We read back at the beginning of chapter 22 that they're what? They're in great dread of the people. They're overcome with fear. So notice whereas whereas the Lord's people previously have been living in utter dread and fear of the nations, now we've come to the point where the nations are in fact living in fear of God's people. It's a wonderful reversal taking place. And they're fearing, Balak is, this horde, a horde that, as he says, will, like an ox, devour the grass of the field, or as in devour them and devour all that they have, verse 4. And notice why exactly Balak is panicking. He's in great dread because what? Because the people were many, verse 3. And then he says in verse 6 that he's in great dread because the people were what? They were too mighty for me. I wonder if that expression about God's people being many and too mighty, does that call to mind another story in the life of Israel? At a time when in their past, God's people faced opposition, not because they actually physically threatened any nation, but merely because they existed and were many and mighty. You know, it's precisely what Pharaoh said. All the way back in Exodus chapter 1 verse 9, Pharaoh said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are what? They are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us. And notice this, what? And escape the land. So it's fascinating right there. We're seeing already how there are parallels between this generation on the edge of the promised land and the generation before there in Egypt, right? In both cases, they're opposed by strong kings, opposed because they had become what? Many and mighty. And in each case, the land is at issue. Pharaoh didn't want to let them go and leave his land for the promised land. And now here we are with Balak, and he doesn't want to let the people into the land either, but wants to drive them out. And notice both those kings will use spiritualists, use mediums, right, magicians in order to get their way. That's what Pharaoh does with his magicians. That's Balak. That's what he's doing with Balaam. So the careful reader is meant to take great comfort just by all these details, right? Just reading carefully, by looking at the story, all those parallels, God's people are to see that just as he had delivered them from Egypt and from Pharaoh and from that mighty king, so they have no reason to worry about Balak and about Moab. And yet this fear of Israel is going to drive Balak right into Balaam's lap. Now, who is Balaam? Well, he's a medium. He's a, what you'd say, a diviner, a, a seer. He's someone who consults with the spiritual world and seeks to manipulate that spiritual world in order to gain advantage. So, I mean, maybe this is, is an illustration. We think of computer hackers today. And what do those computer hackers do? They, they use code and they break into systems, right? And they tweak that code and they turn those systems maybe against the users. Well, Balaam was a kind, in that sense, a kind of spiritual hacker, right? He would use his own spiritual wiles and he would seek to manipulate the will of the gods and to turn the gods against peoples and nations even against the God's own peoples and nations. And Balaam has a reputation, internationally renowned, a reputation for doing this. He is like the best spiritual hacker in the land. And he's exceptional at it, and that's evident because they go a long way, Balak does to get Balaam. And notice what Balak says in the end of verse 6. 
Balak says to Balaam, For I know that he whom you, Balaam, whom you bless is blessed, and whom you curse is cursed. So effective is he at manipulating the will of the gods. Right? We're going to come back to that expression. But all this is only available for, don't miss this, a hefty price. Notice they have to bring Balaam what fees of divination, verse 7. And when they arrive, Balaam says, hey, you know what? i got to consult the Lord, verse 8. As a diviner, Balaam should have had some knowledge of all the local customs and gods. He would certainly know of Yahweh. Now, how much Balaam really knows what that relationship is really like Well, it's not clear here, but it's going to become clearer in the story. And it's going to become even more clear as we go through numbers. But God says to Balaam, not to go, right? You shall not curse this people because God says what? They're blessed. Now, interestingly, Balaam never tells Balak's emissaries that critical piece of information (laughs) that God's people are blessed. He, he keeps that little piece of information to himself. And he merely sends those emissaries away. But right here, we're already seeing the dilemma in the story. Balaam is finding himself between two diametrically opposed wills. He's caught between Balak's demands on the one hand and God's commands on the other. And which will win out? Right? That's what these chapters are uh, doing for us. That's really what this story is all about. Which of these two wins out? And, and Balak, though, he sees Balaam sending his emissaries away. He sees all this as just a negotiating tactic. Right? He assumes Balaam sends him away because he's trying to sweeten the pot. Right? He, wants, he wants Balak to come back and offer him even more money. I guess that's what you did, and that's exactly what Balaam does. He comes back a second time, sends an impressive entourage. We can imagine like blacked out Rolls Royces, right, roll up, tons of them. They got their chests of cash. They mean to make an impression, and they want Balaam. In 22.16, they say, let nothing hinder you, for I will surely do you great honor, and whatever you say to me, I will do. That's the message they give to Balaam from Balak. In other words, Balaam, name your price. Account number, routing number, Swiss bank. You just, you write as many zeros as you want and we will put it in the account for you. Just curse the people. And friend, all that cash, that's hard to turn down. So notice what he does. He says, well, you you know, why don't you just stay the night? Let's, Let's think about this a little bit more. See what God says this time. But friends, he knows what God has said, right? What part of you shall not go with them does Balaam not understand? You know, 2 Peter 2.15, Jude 11, comment that Balaam loved the wages of wickedness, right? That he was infected by greed. Balaam is still hoping somehow, in some way, he can turn this to his own advantage, And Christian, I wonder if you at all can relate to that situation. You know what God's word says, but it conflicts so deeply with something you desperately want. And so what do you do? You seek perhaps to manipulate the situation, maybe bend the situation a little more favorably toward your will. Maybe this one time it will be okay, right? God will understand I know his word says this, but I mean, goodness, it's a lot of money. You know how much good I can do with all this money for for God's causes nonetheless. You know, or God knows. He knows how miserable I am in this situation. God wants me to be happy. So he won't mind if I have to, right, fill in the blank. Date a non-Christian. Walk away from a marriage. Maybe hide my Christian identity in order to blend in with my peers at school. Maybe cheat on an exam. However, we might, we might bend the situation to our advantage. Whatever it is, we reason and, and we justify and we seek to rationalize away our sin. Do you ever relate to that? Sadly, I know I do. And God says, all right, if you're so bent on going, go ahead But only do what I tell you, verse 20. 
And now what's confusing at this point in the story is that God seems to change his mind. He seems to condemn him for going in the very next verses, like verse 22. But friends, keep in mind the fact that we learn later that God is opposed to Balaam because, verse 32, his way is perverse before me. God can see into the heart. He knows why Balaam is about this task. And the fact that God will have to again reiterate, verse 35, go but only speak the word that I tell you, the fact that Balaam never tells Balak's entourage that he's actually been forbidden from cursing Israel, that he keeps again that information to himself, all that suggests that Balaam was still hoping he was going somehow with the hopes of manipulating and turning that situation to his own advantage. Because, of course, he's done it what? He's done it many times before. He's just never come face to face with this God. And God could see his heart. And God sought to expose it. And friends, that's what this humorous account with the donkey, that's what it's all about. We make this account, right, all about the donkey. But it's actually that donkey exists to illustrate everything we need to know about Balaam. To highlight Balaam's own spiritual blindness. To highlight his utter impotence. And the utter futility of seeking to oppose God. Because recognize Balaam, who is he? He is supposed to be an expert at manipulating the will of the gods. And yet he can't even manage his own donkey. Right? This seer supposedly can see into the future, even affect the future, and yet he can't even see the angel of the Lord in his path. He's supposed to be a master with words, but his own donkey's words best him. And notice he's the one who's seeking to be the animal's executioner when he gets angry. When in fact we learn if it wasn't for the donkey, he'd be dead, right? The donkey was his savior. We're meant to see the guy's a clown. He's a spiritual shyster. It'd be, it'd be better if Balak were to actually hire a real donkey than to hire this donkey, right? Balaam. And friends, that's the point of the story. There is no spiritual opposition that can succeed against God's good intentions, right? His purposes always prevail. Balaam is merely an imposter. He is merely a counterfeit. And friends, so is every form of spirituality, every other religious system. They're all counterfeits if they're not based on what? The one thing God keeps drawing our attention to, his word, his own words. God's word is the only thing Balaam is to speak, right? Verse 20, verse 35, again in verse 38, where Balaam finally says, have I now any power of my own to speak anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that must I speak. True spirituality is solely and supremely centered on what? On God's word. On God's word. Right? It's why this word is taking center stage right in our own services. It's why we sing it, read it, pray it, preach it, see it as we did last, even last week in the Lord's Supper. It's why we should personally be reading it, meditating upon it, sharing it with others. We shouldn't dare to do life without this word. We don't look within to find true spirituality. We look to the word and finally to whom the word made flesh, Jesus Christ. You know, if you are not a Christian and you've come here this morning, do not look within to learn about God. Look to Jesus. Listen to Jesus' words. And that is how you learn about God. Read his words. You can find them in the Gospels. Study them with one of us. Jesus will tell you everything you need to know about God. And it's consistent with what we find in the Old Testament. That God has made us. And he's made us because he's a good and he's a loving God. He seeks relationship with those whom he has made. And yet we've rebelled against him inexplicably, yet we've done it. 
We've sinned. We've gone our own way. And yet in his grace and kindness, he sent Jesus Christ into the world to die for sinners, to die for rebels like us. And then he rose from the grave as proof that God accepted that sacrifice for sin so that if we would repent of our sins and trust in Christ, right, God's living word, the only way to him, then we can know newness of life. Right? Those are the words of Jesus. And if you're not certain of that, just go read them. Read them for yourself. They are much better than what I was able to share right there, but you got the gist of it. But friends, all this brings us to our second point. Not only do God's promises always prevail despite spiritual opposition, but secondly, they prevail despite secular aggression. Despite secular aggression. And this brings us to chapters 23 and 24. And here, Balaam is going to give four oracles of sorts to to Balak. And remember, what's Balak expecting? Curses against Israel. But as we're going to see, God has a way of turning the tables on the whole situation. But friends, did you ever stop, if, you happen to, if you've read these chapters before, maybe read them in preparation for the Sunday, did you ever stop to ask, why would Balak and the Moabites be opposing Israel? Why would they be opposing Israel right here? Because at no point thus far in the story has God instructed his people to go on the offensive against Moab, right? Unlike the Canaanites, unlike the Amorites, unlike those in the promised land, the Moabites were left out of that list. They weren't to attack them. Israel is not at war with them. The Moabites descended from whom? From Lot. They're like distant cousins. You don't go against kin. Now, I'm not prone to conspiracy theories, but I'll just note that real Christians... I mean, not like Easter and Christmas Christians, but like real Christians. They often provoke a strong and often negative reaction from the world. There's something about the presence of God's people living as God's people that provokes a reaction, even aggression from the world. So, for example, you know, Muslims can have their times of prayer in the workplace, even in government offices, and largely, often, given a pass, and yet a Christian wants to pray on a football field, not in connection with his responsibilities, for anyone who would like to come, and he's sued and fired and loses his job. Or take yoga, if you will. And I don't just mean like exercise, but more the spiritual kind of yoga, It's being introduced into a lot of public schools. Everyone celebrates it. It's a great thing. But if you start to try and open up maybe a voluntary Bible club, you might quickly find administration, teachers, opposition. Or if your coworker shares about how Buddhist meditation has helped them, nobody worries. Everybody listens. They might even ask for some tips. But if you tell another how Jesus has forgiven you of your sins at the workplace, see how that conversation goes down. Now that's not to say other religions don't face persecution. They absolutely do. But there is a kind of visceral response that often happens against God's people. There always has been, whether or not Israel of the old, the church and the new, which is rather ironic if you think about it because as biblical Christians We're not trying to start wars, like physical wars. We're not trying to take over governments, install a theocracy. We're not even trying to force anybody from becoming a Christian. You can't do that. In Islam, you can hold a sword to someone's throat, and you can make them a Muslim. Because it's all about external submission. In Christianity, you can't do that. Because it's about internal regeneration. The heart has to change. We have no power over that. Point being, God's people face, even as we see here, a kind of secular aggression. It's part of how the darkness seems to naturally hate the light. The world wants to snuff it out just as they wanted to do the same with Jesus. So if you're a Christian here this morning, at one level this story shouldn't surprise you. It shouldn't shock you. It should sober you and hopefully prepare you for the kind of opposition and a kind of aggression you may face for being a Christian. But, you know, if you've come and you're not a Christian this morning, I might just ask you, where does your opposition, opposition to Christianity come from? Where does it come from? 
Does your opposition to Christians, does it make sense? Or is your opposition actually about something else, something deeper, something inside your own heart that you'd rather not talk about? You know, if we go back to our narrative at the start of chapter 23, Balaam begins the costly and elaborate ritual, right, of setting up seven altars, making expensive sacrifices, and he goes away and the Lord puts a word in his mouth. And he comes back, verse 7, utters the first oracle to Balak, to the princes, right, to the Midianites who are there. And we pick up in chapter 23, verse 7. And Balaam took up his discourse and said, From Aram Balak has brought me, the king of Moab from the eastern mountains. Come, curse Jacob for me, and come denounce Israel. Well, how can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? From the top of the crags I see him, from the hills I behold him. Behold a people dwelling alone and not counting itself among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like his. And Balak said to Balaam, what have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies, and behold, you have done nothing but bless them. And he answered and said, Must I not take care to speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? All right, well, clearly this isn't turning out, right, as Balak had hoped. For not only is Balaam not cursing Israel, Balaam is blessing Israel. Right, he's referred to Israel as, verse 9, a people who, who don't count themselves among the nations, as in they see themselves as unique Uniquely blessed by God. Verse 10, who can count the dust of Jacob? There, Balaam is making a reference back to Genesis 13, 16, where God promises, I will make your offspring as the what? As the dust of the earth. So notice Balaam right here is quoting God's promises to Abraham. Instead of cursing Israel, he's confirming the covenant that God has made with Israel. But Balak, despite all that, how poorly the first one's gone, he's like, you know what, I'm not going to give up, let's double down. Maybe just mix up the scenery a little bit, and maybe it can go a little bit better. And so what does he do? He takes Balaam up to the top of Pisgah in verse 23, 14. They're going to go through the same costly sacrifices. God, again, is going to put a word in his mouth, and we get this second oracle, 23, beginning in verse 18. Balaam took up his discourse, rise, Balak, and hear, give ear to me, O son of Zippor, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? That sounds familiar. That's picked up later in 1 Samuel 15 that we heard read earlier in the service. Right? Behold, I received a command to bless. He has blessed, and I cannot revoke it. He has not beheld misfortune in Jacob. Nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord their God is with them, and the shout of a king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt and is for them like the horns of a wild ox. For there is no enchantment against Jacob, no divination against Israel. Now it shall be said of Jacob and Israel, what has God wrought? As in, what has God done? What has he done? Behold, a people, as a lioness, it rises up, and as a lion, it lifts itself It does not lie down until it has devoured the prey and drunk the blood of the slain. Okay, it's getting even worse right after the second oracle. Balak, right? Did you really think God would change his mind is how Balaam opens, right? God is not like us that he changes his mind. He's not fickle like we are. He can't be manipulated like we can be manipulated. But did you think you could really do that? Right? There's no enchantment, he says. There's no divination, verse 23. There's no, like, there's no spiritual formula. There's no correct prayer language. There's no amount of emotion or intensity that we can muster where if we pull some of that together, we can magically just coerce God into doing our own bidding. And you feared Israel would be like what? Like an ox that devours the grass? Well, guess what? You're right. 
He has the strength of an ox, verse 22. And even worse than that, he's more ravenous. He's more ravenous than a roaring lion, verse 24. The situation could not be getting any worse for poor Balak. But you know what they say, third time's a charm, right? So he tries again. New location. Balak takes him to the top of Peor, right, overlooking the desert. So now he can see Israel's camp, Balaam can, in its entirety. And this is a bit reminiscent to the way Satan is going to take Jesus up as well onto a high mountain. Going to show him the kingdoms of the world. And we get the sense here that, that Balak's, or rather Balaam's third temptation, so to speak, right, overlooking the wilderness. Well, that's going to be as futile as Satan's three temptations of Jesus in the wilderness. But only this time we read 24-2 that the Spirit of God comes upon Balaam. And thus he says, chapter 24, beginning in verse 3, he takes up his discourse and says, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened. He was blind, now he sees by the Spirit of God. The oracle of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down with his eyes uncovered, How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel, like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside a river, like aloes that the Lord has planted, like cedar trees beside the waters. Water shall flow from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt and is for him like the horns of a wild ox. He shall eat up the nations, his adversaries, and shall break their bones in pieces and pierce them through with his arrows. He crouched, he lay down like a lion and like a lioness who will rouse him up. Blessed are those who bless you and cursed are those who curse you. Balaam's prophecy here, right? It soars to new poetic heights. It speaks of the abundance of Israel's blessings. And notice the blessings. They've been building all these oracles. We see them again here. Blessings of what? A great people in a prosperous land and right relationship with God. Does that sound familiar? People, land, covenant? Friends, those are exactly the promises God again had made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12, that he would make him into what? A great nation, a prosperous people in a wonderful land, an in-covenant relationship with them. And how does the promise of Genesis 12, 3 end? It ends with these words. God says to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And how does the oracle end in 24.9? Blessed are those who bless you. Cursed are those who curse you. So the very curses that Balak hired Balaam to give against Israel, they've now been flipped against Balak. And in quoting, again, Genesis 12.3, Balaam has just once again confirmed that God has wonderful and beautiful promises for his people that Balak can do nothing about powerless to stop them. Friends, is that not a wonderful example of what we read in Genesis 50, 20? Joseph and his brothers, where God says, you know, what they intended for evil, I intended for good. God is able to bring about the blessing of his people, though Balak sought their cursing. Christian friend, do you believe God has the power to do that in your life? Do you believe that in the midst of your struggles and trials and the difficulties that God can actually work in the midst of what is sometimes nothing but clear evil? That God can in some miraculous, inexplicable way, ways we can't fathom and see, somehow bring blessing out of that. You know, maybe it's related to health. Maybe it's related to family to friends, to to finances, I don't know, whatever it is, you feel pressured, you feel cornered. And I think what I want to say is simply do not give up. Do not abandon God. Do not give up your faith in him. As hard as it is to understand, God remains 
in control. We're given a window into that right here. Now, that's not to say times won't be challenging. It's not to say our our paths are paved with ease. They're absolutely not. But as we sang last week, right, God moves in a mysterious way. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread. What are big with mercy and shall break with blessings on your head. You know, just a word to Guy and Carolyn. Where'd you guys go? I can never make you out down here. Hey, so like as we send you out, as you guys go and you're heading up to Missouri, just up the road, you're beginning a a new season, right? You're going to have to hold fast to this hope, right? Transitions are tough. They're going to be difficult times. I met you in a trailer. You're going back to a trailer, right? I get like, it's going to be tricky perhaps for a little bit. But none of this is by accident, right? God is in control. He knows exactly what he's doing with you all. He knows exactly what he's doing there on the farm with family there at First Baptist Carthage, right? So when it feels like those clouds roll in, and I know you could use some rain up there on the farm, but right, just metaphorically speaking, when the clouds roll and the providence seems dark and grim, what do we go back to? That song that you wrote the beautiful music for last week, right? Behind what a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. And you don't know how every chapter of this next month and year and two years, you don't know exactly how those chapters will turn out. But here's the wonderful thing. You know how the book ends. And it's a glorious end. It is a beautiful end. And you can hold fast to that. Here's the thing. Friends, where is Israel in the midst of all of this? Ignorant. Blissfully ignorant of what is happening. If Israel knew that on those mountaintops, right up there in the distance, if Israel knew that Balaam and his acclaimed occult powers were being funded by Balak's coffers and they had come together with the Midianites all in concert against them, they might right now be fleeing for the hills and trying to go back to Egypt. But friends, God is fighting for them. And they're entirely unaware. And he does that for us all the time. How often is he accomplishing wonderful things for us that we cannot see? Turning the world's aggression against our enemies and turning it rather into favor and blessing for us. Right? We don't have the slightest clue he's doing it. And yet he does it all the time. He's doing it right here with Israel. And notice the timing Of all of these promises to Abraham, that is not by accident because what are the people of Israel about to go do? They're about to go take the land. So what does God do? God gets a pagan seer to proclaim his promises to the nation saying, you will not stop my people. That is their land and I will get them there. And that's what he does. And Balak at this point, he's done, right? None of this has worked out as he wanted He holds his money. He says, Balaam, you're welcome to go home and go home poor and empty. And Balaam says, hey, you know what? I got one last oracle, and this one's for free, he says. This one's on me. And Balaam prophesies, verse 17, chapter 24. I see him. These are the latter days. He's looking out into the future. I see him, but not now. I behold him. But not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall arise out of Israel. All right, he's prophesying right there about a promised future king. One who, if you keep reading this oracle, will rule over nations like the Moabites and the Amalekites. And if you read into 1 Samuel, Saul and David would have victories over the Moabites and the Amalekites. But he goes on to talk later about nations that are even beyond them. Asher, referring to to Babylon, later the Assyrians. Ships from Kittim in verse 24, which most take to be either a reference to the Greeks or the Romans. Empires, right, that are millennia away. Already being spoken to here by Balaam. Empires that are yet to be, and Balaam says this king will rule over all of these empires. Friends, who is that king? We know that king. He's Jesus Christ. It's exactly who he is. Matthew 2.2, what are they looking for? They're looking for the star that has arisen over God's promised king. And Revelation 22.16, how does Jesus describe himself as 
the bright and morning star grabbing right here from this prophecy. Balaam is saying to Balak, not just your kingdom, all the kingdoms of the world will one day become the kingdom of Christ. And you can't stop that. It will happen. So I ask you, what kingdom are you living for? For here's the beautiful news. The the nations were welcome to join Israel. Moab had no need to fear Israel. They could simply join them, enjoy the blessings, the promises. Balaam could have gone, joined up with Israel. But notice what they do in the last verse of our passage, 24-25. Then Balaam rose and went back to his place. And Balak also went his way. You see what they're doing? They're choosing to go their own way. God had presented a glorious future for his people and his promised king, and they rejected that future. You know, maybe they thought they could take their own chances. Maybe they thought their future, right, with this God, it's still as uncertain as that 2000 presidential election, right? It's a toss-up. It could go either way, depending upon how it all falls. They were still holding on to their own kingdoms. Their kingdoms where they rule as king. Their own futures where they get what they want. Friend, could that still describe you? Do you think, though, that if that's you, do you think your kingdom really stands a chance against this king? You know, how about the youth, right? You came, you were at the youth retreat this weekend, you're coming back, you were thinking through First Peter, where we're You're told about a kingdom. You're told about an inheritance that is what? It's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Will that kingdom be yours? God's purposes prevail. Despite spiritual opposition, despite secular aggression, God gets his way every single time. So I ask again, does that prospect encourage you or does that prospect terrify you? Whose kingdom will it be? Yours or Christ's? Let's pray.